My name's Tanisha, and I'll be reading for us today. We've got two Bible readings this morning. The first one is from the book of Acts, chapter 9, verses 1 to 31. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord said to him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim the name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him, but his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. 
When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. The second reading will be from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Our time in Acts has led us, in chapters 1 to 7, to ask the question, what can stop the mission of the risen King Jesus? And time and time and time again, we've seen that the answer is, of course, nothing. Nothing can stop the mission of the risen King Jesus. But last week, we took a turn. From Acts 8 onwards, the question changes. It's not so much... What can stop the mission of the risen King Jesus? The question really is, who? Who is, the, who is Jesus for? Is anyone too far from God's redeeming grace? We saw that last week in Acts chapter 8 with Philip and the eunuch. This week we'll see it with Saul. Next week we'll see it with a Roman man by the name of Cornelius. But just think about this as we get our heads in Acts chapter 9. Think about some unlikely stories... And then think about what they all have in common. Here's the first one. Anthony Flew. He is an atheist and a philosopher. And in 2004, he said this, The journey to my discovery of the divine has thus far been a pilgrimage of reason. I followed the argument where it has led me. It has led me to accept the existence of a self-existent, immutable, immaterial, omnipotent, and omniscient being. I now believe there is a God. And if you've never heard of Anthony Flew, it's hard to describe the impact that his belief in God had on his sphere of influence in the atheistic and philosophical world that he lived in. Um, It was huge news. But if you don't know who Anthony Flew is, maybe you've heard of someone called uh, Kanye West, or Yee, as he now goes by. And in 2019, um, he professed faith in Jesus. And someone said, uh, commenting on that, if he thinks that for one second that calling on the name of Jesus will somehow forgive a lifetime of misogyny, blasphemy, profanity, and sexual immorality. He's absolutely right. A musician, a producer, high profile, apparently knows Jesus. An atheist, who spent his life disproving God existed, now believes in God. Two very high profile, unlikely people you'd never expect that would know who God is. But I would guess none of us are multi-million dollar music producers or philosophers, maybe we are, but even at a smaller level, in 2003, a teenager that I knew uh, once said this, I could see that having things and stuff weren't going to hold me up. In Jesus, a new scaffolding for my life was here, one of value, grace, forgiveness, and hope. Things can't do that. An unknown teenager in the scheme of things a philosopher who's written books, a music producer, and a musician. What's the common thread between all these three people? 
none of them believed apart from God's mercy to them. None of them believed except God initiated grace. And that's what we see when we meet Saul in today's passage. He said, I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, sorry, that's a spelling mistake, persecutor, and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. But what does he mean, acted ignorant, a persecutor, a violent man? What does he mean by that? Well, simply to him, at this point in his life where we meet him in the beginning of Acts 9, the notion of a crucified Messiah is, quite frankly, stupid. Messiahs win, they rule, they reign, they don't die. The Jewish law that he gave his life to insisted that if someone is hung on a tree, they're cursed by God. Jesus is, quite frankly, to his mind at this moment, the biggest form of blasphemy there ever was, because the followers of Jesus, known as the Way, claim that this Jesus who hung on a tree not only forgives sin, something only God can do, but actually is God himself come to rescue and redeem. He is the suffering servant that Isaiah spoke about. He's the one that will bring about a new heavens and earth in his name. And so for Paul, Saul, as he's known here, as Acts 9 verse 2 says, those who follow this way need to be destroyed. And that explains the monstrous rage and threats that we encounter He's just so unlikely to trust Jesus, turn to him. Yet, by the end of the chapter, he's now a trophy of grace himself, isn't he? Because after all, if Jesus is alive, then everything changes. And that's the theme for today. If Jesus is alive, then everything changes. So come and see how Saul became a trophy of grace. First two verses. Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples... He went to the high priest and asked for letters for the synagogues in Damascus, that if he found any who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So he's not satisfied with just persecuting a few locals in Jerusalem now. He's anxious to do more damage. Stephen is killed, persecution floods the church, and all the disciples of Jesus scatter into the surrounding countrysides and villages. And so what Saul wants to do now is travel from here to the Flinders, 250 k's that distance, to the city of Damascus. And you can see it on the orange line there on the map. Jerusalem's at the bottom. He's going up north to Damascus, 250 kilometers, chasing down, fleeing, persecuted Christians. Not only that, he's used his position of authority to get permission from the Jerusalem synagogue to try and sway the other synagogues to side with him. I mean, it's a great argument. Jerusalem says the followers of the way are evil and they're blasphemous. You should really side with Jerusalem here and persecute them as well and and let me bring them back to Jerusalem in chains. Quite frankly, from every angle, things look terrible for God's people, don't they? He's the biggest threat to the church so far. But because Jesus is really alive, he can do the unthinkable. It means he can confront Saul. Look what verse 3 and 4 say. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and a voice said to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul's traveling on his path and God just shows up in the middle of it. The bright light's a picture of God and his glory. Think Moses and the burning bush. 
I mean, God dwells in unapproachable light. Think the mountain where Jesus was transfigured, more brighter than the sun. I mean, it's a little wonder that in seeing this light, he falls to the ground, unable to see. And then God speaks. I mean, this is ridiculous. I mean, why do you persecute me, the voice says. But it's a personal voice, isn't it? Notice it says me, persecute me. God is not only an impersonal force, God is not, sorry, an impersonal force like light, nor is he limited and finite and frail and becoming like a human. In this moment, Saul is meeting the personal, visible, resurrected, audible Jesus, which is why he asks, who are you? Because, you see, Saul's belief system had no problem assuming the supernatural. Pharisees, he was a Pharisee, believed in angels and the resurrection of the dead. He hears the voice, the supernatural God is at work, and Saul must to know, who are you? Who's speaking to me? I'm Jesus who you're persecuting. Now get up and go to the city, you'll be told what you must do. Then the men traveling with Saul, they stood speechless, they heard the sound but didn't see anyone. So Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. And this is where the confrontation gets even more intense for Saul. The very name that he hates, Jesus, is speaking to him. It's like talking to someone behind their back, yet they're actually behind you the whole time. Moreover, Jesus says that actually you're persecuting me when you persecute my followers. And that's huge. And Meredith pointed it out for us. Saul thought he was doing Jesus a favor, but he's actually been doing the very opposite. I mean, what do you expect Jesus to say at this moment? I mean, such power, such divine revelation, light, the voice. What would be fitting for Saul if you were God, let's assume, and someone's persecuting you very intensely as you're trying to get your new church started, and you should obviously squash them, shouldn't you? You should nut it out. You should stamp it down. You should make him suffer. Jesus suffered. I want you to suffer. Get revenge. Or what about redirecting him? What about showing him mercy? What about undoing Saul totally, bringing him to the end of himself? What about giving him a new purpose based upon grace, not hatred? Because that's exactly what happens. Get up, go to the city, you'll be told what you must do. He's weak. He's at the end of himself. He has to be led by hand. He doesn't eat or drink for three days. He's temporarily blind. You see, those who encounter God walk away with a limp, not a strut. Like Jacob in the Old Testament. Weakness and humility are the way of Jesus. No swagger is needed. And for three days, as he's shut off from the outside world, unable to see, the lights are going on in his mind and his heart for the very first time. God is the one to convert him, right? Three times in this narrative, in verse 6, 11, and 15, God commands his people what to do. God takes the initiative. Because not only does God call unlikely people, changing their entire worldview by his grace, he asks his people to think in new categories as well. It's just getting your head and your hands and your heart around the new categories God makes is always a little bit tricky, and we're a little bit slow, to be honest. I mean, after all, if you just found out Saul was converted on Twitter, what would you do? Would you retweet and say, no, rubbish, 
Don't believe it. He's faking it. His life's messy. There is no evidence of grace. He's just wanting to actually persecute people more. He's pretending. I mean, that's probably what would happen. Well, it's good that we meet Ananias at this point because he is just like us. He found this really hard news as well. Meet Ananias in Damascus, a disciple of Jesus. And the Lord called to him in a vision and said, Ananias, and he says, yes, Lord, go to the house of Judas in Straight Street and ask for the man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying in a vision. He's seen a man named Ananias. It's you. Come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. And then Ananias swallows hard and obviously has razor blades in his mouth and his stomach gets butterflies because he said, Lord, I've heard many reports about this man and all, of, all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. He's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. And then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, brother Saul, what a change. The Lord Jesus, who you appeared to you on the road, sent me so that you may again see and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He could see, got up, ate, was baptized. Ananias is called on by the Lord. Divine revelation. Old Testament, Samuel, like Saul as well. And he has a vision of the Lord, just like Saul does. But the difference is, of course, Ananias knows who the Lord is, and he says, yes, Lord, and this, this is great. The yes implies ready and willing for action. You know, yes, yes, I'm ready. Tell me what to do. I'm excited. You've called on me, Lord. This is great. I've had a vision of God. He's going to tell me to just do something wonderful, and it's going to be encouraging and the best thing ever. And, uh, and it, oh, I just can't wait. It's going to just make me so excited. And so the Lord says, go to the one person who's killing and persecuting Christians. I mean, you'd just not expect it, would you? He's spluttering. Hold on. I think you've got the name Saul wrong. Maybe you meant, uh, you know, Saulos or someone or whoever. Are you sure? Because not only do you have to go next to him in the same building, you have to touch him and pray for him. And by doing that, he'll get his eyesight back and the Holy Spirit will come and he'll be baptized. Do that. Actually embrace the one who's killing and capturing Christians. Go and do that, Ananias. And Ananias stutters for a bit. And what does the Lord do when he stutters? Does, does he, you know, oh, you of little faith, chastise him? I mean, maybe in three days or so, Ananias can just, you know, God can slap him around a bit. No. Just like Saul, God gives grace and purpose in his response. This man is my chosen instrument. You know, God finds his people in strange places, are persecuted to be the greatest church planter and missionary, missionary and theologian. In the wilderness for John the Baptist, a manger and a small town for the Messiah, fishermen for the apostles. In front of me, living, walking, breathing stories of God's grace finding you in such strange places where you're at. What God says to Ananias is, I see people as they will be, not just as they are at this moment. God has a long-range vision, not short-sighted knowledge. Because he says, Saul is my instrument. My instrument. An instrument of grace to tell others of the grace of Jesus. 
He's a trophy of grace. And so Ananias goes to Saul, he calls him brother, he lays hands on him. And the same spirit, just like we've seen through Peter and the apostles at Pentecost and with Philip and the eunuch comes to show the continuity. We see in this story that God's meet people exactly where they're at, bringing about faith that's suitable in every situation. And as all this happens, in verse 18, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. It's no reason to think it wasn't real, but it's obviously not the typical experience. We never, ever hear of that again in the book of Acts or the New Testament. But the point is that Saul is having a very physical experience of what all of us go through spiritually. Our eyes being opened to see Jesus, being filled with the Spirit, baptized in water. You see, this big picture that Luke's interested in telling, who's the author of Acts, is that even the hardest heart can be softened by grace. Opponents can become servants, oppressors, proclaimers, not by their effort, not changing their own spots, but by God's sovereign grace. Because if Jesus is alive, then everything changes. And that's what we see here. The zeal that Saul had against God is now directed towards God and his glory. Moreover, did you notice that Saul did make it to Damascus in the end? just not how he expected. Instead of taking letters to the synagogue saying, I'm going to kill the Christians and capture them, he comes with a message of life in the name of Jesus. And the same is true for us, in a sense, that often God saves us and just keeps us in the same place, but different for his glory and his purpose is not our own. Because it's all quite astonishing. You just would not expect him to be converted. You'd not expect that his conversion would also be his commissioning, would you? But it's what happens. Look, he took some food, he regained his strength, and he spent several days with the disciples at once, preaching in the synagogue. Jesus is the Son of God, and all who heard were astonished. Yet, as time goes on, he grew more powerful, baffled the Jews living in Damascus, proving Jesus is the Messiah. And for the next three years, he stayed here in Damascus, went to Arabia for a little bit, but came back growing powerfully in his understanding of Jesus. And three years later, in verse 23, after many days, it's three years, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. And then in this wonderfully, almost comical scene, they put him in a basket through the wall at night, and he skedaddled off to Jerusalem. You know, throughout Saul's life, he'll react differently to persecution, but he'll never seek it out. It just seems to find him. He never shrinks back from it, but it's never his goal But what he learns quickly is that faith in Jesus is built for times like that. Because faith in Jesus says those are a means and a way for greater witness and greater trust. So with Damascus no longer safe, empty with Jesus' followers, but filled with Jesus himself, he goes to Jerusalem. But no one wants him there. His reputation precedes him again. Jerusalem's in chaos. When he came to Jerusalem in verse 26, he tried to join them but they were afraid. Now we read about Barnabas again. Took him to the apostles. Big-hearted Barney from Acts chapter 6, who sold the field, generous kind, took him to Peter, John, all those, and he told them how Saul had seen the Lord. The Lord spoke to him in Damascus. He preached fearlessly. And so Saul stayed with them, and he preached fearlessly. But again, they tried to kill him when he started debating with those that tried to kill Stephen, the Hellenistic Jews. He goes who was once a persecutor to those who persecuted Stephen and says, guys, you got it wrong. They don't like him. And so they ship him off to Tarsus again. 
with open arms and a credible character, Barnabas can reassure that Saul is genuine because a testimony is a powerful thing. Credibility and genuineness is something that we hold dear in Australia too. We celebrate authenticity. But you know, we're hopeless at forgiveness too in our culture. Cancer culture has no room for grace or mercy or mistakes. And you've seen this with the text messages sent around the politicians this week, haven't you? But into this, into this, what the church can do and should do and is able to do is to be a people that proclaim and show a message of divine grace and forgiveness. That sinners and failures are welcome. That God's grace covers and redeems and we exist to show that. Because Saul stayed with them. They didn't ask him to leave politely. They embraced him. Peter and John show the same grace that Jesus has shown them to him. This is the kind of church that breathes in deeply God's grace and exhales it to others. And he's allowed to move about freely. They didn't restrict him because of his past. They're on the same page, united in Jesus. And then things go sour. And so he has to do a long journey now pink line and yellow line, Jerusalem, Caesarea, all the way up to his home in Tarsus. And for 11 years, 11 years, 14 years then from his conversion, Barnabas travels in Acts 11 and knocks on his door and says, hey, Saul, remember me? We have a job to do, let's go. But even though Saul's left, his reception had a positive effect. Peace rippled through the church. Look at verse 31. The church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed peace and was strengthened, living in fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. This is a marker that Luke put in there so we know what's going on. All the places we've seen so far in Acts, Judah and Samaria mentioned, and the places we haven't, like Galilee. But one, one united, it's singular, church. The church enjoyed peace. We've seen the church expand and face hostility. We've seen lives changed. But what we're learning here at this point in time is the church doesn't need to fear those who persecute it. They do need to fear, just not the persecutors. Notice how Jesus redirects it. And I find it so wonderful that in a chapter full of fear, fear of Saul as a persecutor, then fear of Saul as a Christian, it ends with a fear that makes them strong and encourages them, and as a result, they grow in number. What sort of fear is this? It is a fear in the living God, a culture of grace to others, and of fear towards Jesus. But what does that mean? It's a dual picture of Jesus, gentle and lowly, caring deeply for us as flawed failures by His grace. But... The one who reigns and rules as a universal king, sovereign over every life to whom we will give an account. Fear him. Fear him who has that authority. He says it in Luke, doesn't he? Fear him who can who knows all the hairs on your head. But if you die, not a hair will on your head will perish, actually. I mean to say it bluntly, who cares what happens to a Christian in this life? To live is Christ, to die is gain, we can't lose because if Jesus is alive, then everything changes. Even who we fear. And by God's grace, that can be true of you and me as well. 
So in Acts 9, as it began, great fear and hostility, God's people relentlessly hunted at the greatest threat to the church, Saul. However, God can overcome the rage by converting him, showing us and the Christians in Damascus and Jerusalem that his grace is never too far from even the most unlikely person. Saul was a trophy of grace. Now, the dramatic event changed his whole course of life, and he quickly shifted from a persecutor to a preacher. And while it was a shock for most people, as time went on, Saul's life and character began to speak for itself, and with the help of kind-hearted Barney, the church shows him and us just what a culture of grace looks like. They accepted him, even protecting him when others came after him. And all that is a vivid reminder that the right fear of God is important. That persecution, persecution for belonging to God is a real thing, but that God uses all things and unlikely people to show grace to more and more. And that's where we'll land it. God is welcoming all kinds of people, even those who look like the most unlikely. Because if Jesus is alive, as Saul saw and heard, then everything changes. But sometimes it's hard to see when there's persecution. Sometimes we doubt Jesus can really save. Sometimes we're unsure if we know enough or are wise enough to speak. Sometimes we struggle to see what difference Jesus actually makes day by day. But did you know if you're a follower of Jesus today, you're a trophy of grace? With an unlikely story. No matter what that story is, it is unlikely. For Saul, for Anthony Flew, for me, if Jesus is alive, then everything changes. It changes how we relate to God, it changes how we embrace others, it changes our hearts, especially our hearts. I mean, after all, Saul would write to the church in Rome a few years later, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still liars, blasphemers, perverts, hypocrites, gossipers, murderers, racists, proud, deceitful, apathetic, greedy, prayerless, addicted, vulgar, hated, rebellious, cowards, sinners. Christ died for us. And that changes everything. Do you know that grace this morning? Do you know that mercy that changes Why not take comfort in the fear of God this week? Rest in his grace and his open arms. And why not chat with someone after church, with someone who you want to know God to, and commit to praying for them this week, that God would do just that? Let's pray as God's people. Lord, our hearts are prone to wonder to leave the God that we love. So, Lord, take and seal our hearts. Seal them for your courts above. It's only by your grace that we stand. It's only by your grace that we have hope. And we want to rest in that. So to everyone here, would that be our story? That we would celebrate through tears and gritted teeth and joys that you are our God. You are full of mercy and grace to us. And would you save those in our life, in our sphere of influence, who seem so unlikely, bring them to faith and repentance in Jesus, we pray. Amen.